0: When George W. Bush first introduced the Faith-Based Initiative, launching in January of 2001, a White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, as well as five mini-offices or centers in cabinet-level agencies, I remember thinking it was a good idea because it was fair. The fundamental principle followed after the charitable choice provision from the 1996 Welfare Reform Bill signed into law by President Clinton, which passed the Gingrich Congress. The basic idea, if the federal government was going to contract out its public services to non-government organizations, typically nonprofits, and of course it does this already on a massive scale, then faith-based groups should be able to compete fairly alongside secular groups. No reason to discriminate against social service organizations with a faith mission if those organizations have the capacity to do excellent work. Those groups, of course, can't proselytize on Uncle Sam's dime, but it should be a level playing field. So our 43rd president, who'd himself kicked an alcohol problem with the practical help of faith, essentially invited through this legal principle and the work of these small cabinet level offices, more faith groups to access public resources in their own social repair work. Bush thought the dividends could pay off for people in need and for Uncle Sam, which would harness volunteers and buildings owned by congregations where ESL classes and soup kitchens and prisoner re-entry supports were sometimes provided. But would his political opponents agree? Some were less religious, questioning the underlying motivations of these faith-based groups lining up for public resources. Some journalists asked if there was perhaps a political motive to the faith-based initiative. Today on the podcast, we host two brilliantly accomplished former political appointees who were part of this early vision and have thought carefully about its possibilities and pitfalls. Ryan Streeter is the State Farm James Q. Wilson Scholar and Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he oversees research in education, technology, housing, urban policy, poverty studies, workforce development, and public opinion. He previously ran the Center for Politics and Governance at UT Austin, and before that was Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy to Indiana Governor Mike Pence. He knew our other guests while serving as an assistant for domestic policy to President Bush in the White House faith-based office and in serving as policy advisor to Indianapolis Mayor Steve Goldsmith, with whom he has a terrific political piece up today on this very topic. Ryan's publications include four books, ranging from how to transform American charity to neighborhood-based civic renewal to fostering grassroots dynamism, and smarter economic mobility. Joining Ryan to discuss his own forthcoming article in Mosaic about the faith-based office's legacy is Tevi Troy, a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Tevi has worked as a Senate Chief of Staff on Capitol Hill and as Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, where he helped oversee a budget of $716 billion. He's also a best-selling presidential historian whose book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House, from Truman to Trump, was named one of the 2020 top political books by the Wall Street Journal. Each of these thoughtful presidential appointees turned policy-minded scholars also hold PhDs, Ryan in political philosophy from Emory and Tevy in American Civilization from UT Austin. And as Tevy points out to his fellow Bush administration peer, In one way or another, all three presidents since Bush have basically upheld a faith-based office. President Obama and both subsequent presidents maintained a number of the smaller agency centers, which during the Bush administration expanded from five cabinet-level agencies to 11. Those leading the White House faith-based office have been lawyers, community organizers, prosperity gospel pastors, and policy-oriented types. And now 22 years on, the conversation you're about to hear offers a window into the faith-based office's story, including visionary goals, but also missed opportunities, mistakes, and breakthrough insights Ryan and Tevi argue still hold potential, even on our own bumpy times. Enjoy the conversation.
1: So Tevi Troy, good to be with you again, as always. A uh, question for you. You have a forthcoming piece coming out where you're rethinking the Faith-Based and Community Initiative Office that George W. Bush started 20 years ago, basically, a little more than 20 years ago under John DiIulio's leadership. Why did you write this now? Why this piece now? And what is it about?
2: Well, Ryan, thanks. It's great to see you. And we've worked together in the White House and so many other places. And I've been with you in Washington, in Texas, now in cyberspace together. So th- this is great. Thank you. I have a two-part answer to this question. The first part is from a macro perspective. I am trying to spend these years leading up to the 2024 election to look at policy areas where I have specific expertise for my time in government and trying to lay out my thoughts on it that I think could be helpful to whoever the 2024 election winner could be. So I've done pieces on COVID policy, how to remake CDC. I'm working on something on anti-Semitism and what could be a conservative policy response to that. And then this article on the faith-based office. So I'm trying to think about where I can be helpful in the policy development space. So given that macro mission that I've taken on, the faith-based office is something that I worked on at the very beginning of the George W. Bush administration. John Diulio brought me in to be the head of the office at the Department of Labor. I wrote the first report for the faith-based office on what was happening in faith-based initiatives at the Department of Labor that became the model for the rest of the departmental faith-based offices, wrote their reports. And I've had a long and warm feeling about the faith-based office. However, I have seen in recent years that the faith-based office is not really acting along the path that we originally intended. And I think there is great promise in the faith-based office. And so I thought this would be a good time to look into this issue to see how we could kind of reclaim the vision of the faith-based office and potentially make it a tool in the toolbox of whoever wins the 2024 election.
1: That's pretty interesting. When you think about what it was, what its potential was, and kind of what it's become, Explain a little bit for everyone who's listening, like, what have you seen, which sounds like you're chronicling a little bit of a decline that's happened over the years since it was started. What's changed about it? What do you want to reclaim or what do you want to do that's different than what's how it's working right now? Well,
2: there have been a couple of declines. The decline in the faith-based office and its effectiveness is one, but also a decline in social capital in America, if you will. We've all read Nick Everstat's brilliant piece about how bad the 2020s have been for lower middle-class males. And we see social pathologies all around us, whether it's in terms of school shootings or the proliferation of homelessness or drug addiction. And these are issues that, in some ways, have some answers in religion. Fatherlessness, for example, various churches recommend that people get married before they have kids, for example, drug addiction. There are faith based programs to help with that kind of thing. So, as we're seeing these social challenges proliferate in America, and at the same time, we're seeing a decline in people who are involved in faith-based activities. And also we're seeing a kind of decline in respect for the church, and in large part because there have been many church-based scandals across religions, you know, <laughs> you name it. I mean, Jewish, which is by faith, or Catholic, or Protestant. I mean, there have been multiple scandals that hurt the reputation of the church. And so it seems to me that a useful and effective faith-based office would be something that could both try and reclaim the honored position that the church had in American life in an earlier era, but also leverage the trillion dollars in social spending that we have the federal government spend every single year and make sure that those dollars are used to better effect by people who are on the ground, who care about the individuals and are not just blind check-writing bureaucrats from Washington.
1: It's interesting when I think back to those early days, when I first joined the administration at the end of 2001, it was in the White House Office of Faith Based and Community Initiatives. And then after being there for six months or so, I got dispatched over to HUD to the run the faith-based office there. And then came back. Thanks to you, Tevi. Tevy hired me at the domestic policy council as a special assistant after the re-election, but I spent, you know, a couple of two years, just about a little under, over at HUD when we were doing a lot of those reforms to the regulations that interpreted how religious organizations could or could not interact with the federal government. Our view was that the First Amendment case law needed to be used to update what had been overly discriminatory regulations before that, basically barring people of faith or organizations of faith from receiving federal funds or participating in federal programs. That was a very concerted effort that took time. And while I was at HUD, I was, I think, the first person in the administration to be summoned up to the Hill to testify about what we were doing and went up with the chief of staff at HUD, who was also involved in these efforts, you know, to basically take incoming for an hour from Barney Frank, the Financial Services Committee, and Mel Watt and others. And at the heart of it was the controversy that was perceived that it was a real controversy among people about the perceived threat of allowing relig- religious organizations to do this in the first place and so it might be hard for listeners who haven't weren't around for that history or haven't really taken a good look into it to realize how just controversial that notion was back in the early days that we would actually be allowing people of faith as they're serving within their communities to participate in programs that we believed then and still do now were perfectly acceptable under jurisprudence regarding the First Amendment. But that notion was particularly a hot button issue. It seems to me, and Tevi, you can tell me if you disagree with it, it seems to me that in the intervening years that controversy has really shifted on into other aspects of religion. What we might call the culture war issues where people really divide on things like marriage or on identity politics. all of that but the notion that religious organizations can be partners within some of these programs seems to be a little bit more normalized now than it was back then that's been my my perception over the years that the controversy surrounding allowing organizations in, in principle anyway, has diminished to some extent. And I would think because of those efforts actually worked out pretty well and didn't create the problems that people were afraid of. And so it's become a little bit more normalized in the years after that. That's at least my take.
2: Yeah, thanks for bringing up that history, Ryan. And I think it is important to take a little step back and look into this. Faith-based, this whole faith-based idea didn't start with George W. Bush, although he tried to implement it in the administration at the executive level. But there was the charitable choice provision of the 1996 Welfare Reform Act. And so the idea there, and it was controversial at the time, is that we have all of these faith-based offices, entities around the country. Professor Ram Kanan at uh, University of Pennsylvania says that we have more churches per capita than any other nation on earth. The idea was to be able to use and leverage the social service efforts of those churches In conjunction with the federal government and the trillion dollars it spends on social services annually. Because again, these churches or these faith-based entities are on the ground, have an interest in the spiritual health of the individuals, not just in them getting checks, but in trying to heal them or repair them or or make them more prepared to deal with the challenges of everyday life. So the idea was that these faith-based offices could be helpful in this regard, but there was a very strong contingent on the left that said no absolutely not you cannot allow federal dollars to be directed in any way by faith based entities this violates the separation of church and state which is not true and it's the phrase i heard over and over again and i'm sure you heard it too ryan was camel's nose is under the tent this camel's nose was constantly coming under the tent and you know poking through this tent and coming after us and we've seen over the last 20 years that that's just not accurate that You can have the federal government partner with faith-based entities and the faith-based entities can be smarter about how to direct, I say, theoretically scarce federal resources. I mean, you know, with 31 trillion in debt, I don't know how scarce they are, but to direct theoretically scarce federal resources to the best place where they can be leveraged and used to best effect. And I would say that argument in large part because of George W. Bush and the creation of the faith-based initiative and the fact that he was very careful to do it in a bipartisan way. Remember John Diulio, our our friend and mentor, who started it initially, is and was a Democrat. And then Jim Tui, who came in after him, had worked for both Democrats and Republicans. So there wasn't the sense that it was a partisan office. And I think that helped carry the day as well. But today, at the same time, when the offices of faith-based initiative I don't think are that useful and helpful to the conversation, they've also won the day in terms of allowing federal dollars to be used in conjunction with faith-based entities in a way that I think is is a positive.
0: And, you know, you include in your piece, Tevi, the line from, I think it's one of the more conservative evangelical voices, which maybe it's Moeller, about government. Shekels will often bring government shackles if you work at it. So the, the fear and concern goes both ways, including in the faith faith community sort of line. But I have a slightly different question. You know, It's about the structure of this office. You say it could be you know, playing sort of a legal role. And remember, Melissa and, and Jim Toohey are both lawyers. It could be playing a different kind of role, though, right? It could be more of a community organizing type posture. Josh, Do you think of Josh D- Dubois, Josh Dixon? Think of the Professor DiUlio who you're describing and his personality to be tough, tough on these groups. Sometimes these things reflect the personality of the the person who's giving leadership at the faith-based office. You think of Brent Durrell, Ryan's good friend, you know, really burrowing in with ETA and getting traction because he got to know the bureaucracy itself. And so the, the sort of the work follows just the innovation of the actual leader. Max Finberg was like this as well, I remember. My question is, does the office characteristic also follow the president himself? I mean, for Bush, remember, it was like, a faith experience that led to a very secular practical outcome, like he quit drinking. And for Obama, he is the constitutional law scholar. So this is about the rules being clarified. And this is also about community organizing on the South side of Chicago. Do the office and Trump, let's talk about Trump for a minute, You know, largely about Paula White, bringing in a gazillion pastors to the, the White House to sort of, you know, display this power, and but it wasn't as much sort of substance and policy. How does the arc of the faith-based office follow the, the personality of the, of the leader, in your, in your view? And Ryan, too, please.
2: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And let me give a first crack at it, Ryan. But first of all, when I think of John Diulio, I don't think tough, tough. I think of thoughtful, thoughtful, right? I mean, here is a guy who is, I think, one of the leading political scientists of our era, and he was willing to, first of all, take a leave from teaching, but also to put some real thought into what these offices are and what they represent and how they can be helpful. It is true that subsequent offices have been reflective of the personalities of the presidents, but let's give Obama some credit here. I mean, I I think the biggest impact of the Obama faith-based office is that he kept it. I think that in itself was a surprise. A new Democrat coming in after a time when, you know, unfortunately, George W. Which was not so popular, left office and with a low approval rating. And Obama could have just said, we're going to throw this faith-based office aside. And this doesn't mean I approve of everything that Obama did or, or the way he recreated the office, but he did keep it. And I think that established a precedent and a bipartisan precedent that this office was something that was worth keeping. And so, yeah, of course, it makes sense that to some extent, the faith-based offices will reflect I don't know if it's the personality of the president or the personality of the administration, I think, which are are separate and distinct things. But Trump, I think, did think it more as a kind of office of public liaison supplement in a way. And and he did put it under the office of public liaison, which I think is public engagement by, by that point. So, yeah, I think there is something to that. But what I'm arguing for in the forthcoming article is to try and refocus the office to both elevate the respect that we have for the church and the faith-based community in general, and use it to show that the federal government, if the dollars are directed correctly, can help alleviate social ills. And so the two of them combined, if they work together, can potentially improve the reputations of each one, both of which have suffered over these last 20 years.
1: Yeah, those are good points. And I think that there's a real need, again, for some of those original Purposes of the office when it comes to actually changing the way federal programs work and the way we think about serving people in grassroots communities effectively to essentially bring back this notion of community healers who are actually doing so much that we haven't been shining a light on a lot. I mean, I think back in those days when this was all new and it was controversial, as we were talking about before, I remember talking about the people that worked in and across the faith-based initiative, both at the White House and throughout the agencies, being in sort of two camps. This was not designed this way. This was Ryan Streeter's interpretation of the kinds of people that signed up to be a part of this. There were the reformers and the missionaries. And the reformers was the camp that I was probably more in, that we should be working with devolutionary practices to put People in the driver's seat who can truly fix their communities and figure out which kind of programs could benefit from the kinds of reforms that would put the people at the front lines truly in the front lines of the the solution. And then there were the people that really cared about getting out the message, convening people. We had these amazing conferences we would do once a month all over the country where 1,200 people would fill up a a hotel ballroom just to come and learn about the various ways that they could be involved with public programs to alleviate poverty, to house the homeless, to to open food kitchens and, and all the rest of it. And there were some people that were really good at getting out that message. There were others of us who were focused on policy reforms, and those two things actually went together hand in hand. And the history that Tevi just walked us through a bit ago is so important when you think about it in the context of what we were coming out of in the 1990s. We went through a really revolutionary time of domestic policy reforms to a 30-year-old Great Society programs, which had been failing in many ways that were, had become quite evident. I mean, it is hard to fathom when you just, if you just run it through it chronologically, think that the first voucher program was created in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1991. The first charter school law was in Minnesota in 1992. You had public housing reforms in 1992 under the leadership of Jack Kemp. And that legacy of tearing down those big old legacy style public housing, replacing them with a more community-based structure, that created the research that Raj Chetty's become famous for too, that, that moving to opportunity study started with that law. And 1994 was the expansion of community policing and then famously 1996 was welfare reform. In all of these cases, you were actually devolving a lot more decision-making and resources to communities. And in the intervening years, what was happening is as people dug into this and studied it, we're finding out that in communities where the resources were being managed very closely to those they were serving, they're actually having pretty good outcomes. And so that's where I got started in my career at the Hudson Institute, studying these programs, looking at where it was working, where it wasn't. And there's been some more research since then to show that 2nd order devolution, as it's called. you know, States got block grants, and then they would devolve those down to municipalities with basic provisions to expect their to be community partnerships as people are moving from welfare to work and you created this kind of ecosystem of grassroots organization with the goal of alleviating poverty that was very present to all of us. And so when you go back and you read George W. Bush's campaign speeches in the 2000 election, and we all handily had those in that blue book that sat on our shelves where we had his speeches with the fact sheets, you could go through them. We actually did this, I remember, before, maybe it was the 2003 State of the Union, when we were doing the budget in 2002, and the feedback from the president was, I don't have a lot of compassion in this speech that my speechwriters are writing. And we went back to the blue book and found that he had talked about voucherizing substance abuse, Dollars so that people could take them to faith-based organizations. And we got teamed together and we came up with what became a voucher program that now, you know, when you go to a state and hear people talk about it, no one knows that history. But it was born out of this idea that we should actually reform policy with a goal of, of getting the best possible and most effective service, which you just can't do at the community level without involving faith-based groups and other community nonprofits. That era of reform was a fresh era. It was in the air. We were all inspired motivated by it and wanted to take it further and make things better. We fast forward now 20 years later we're having a lot of discussions in in the in Washington DC in the policy community that are very federally focused and I would say that both Republicans and Democrats have really spent a lot of time thinking about things we can do from Washington DC but when you start actually thinking practically about reforming programs to make them more effective you raise this question again about what the nature of the communities are that those dollars and resources would go into and so I think it's a really good time to revisit what the federal government's role in policy is vis-a-vis faith-based, community-based, and other local nonprofits.
0: Yeah, and Ryan calls in a new piece today in Politico for sort of a devolution in some of this safety net, sort of rethinking policing and crime, how different police training, how that could elevate trust as opposed to just be about law and order alone. But a lot of you guys both talk about trust. And I wonder if you comment on that piece too, Like, right? So since the faith-based initiative began, it would be easy to assume there's great continuity with religion in America, and there is. But but still, there's been a decline. You know, It's at least down from something like 70% me- sort from of institutional membership to about 49.5% institutional membership in the same metric, Gallup, Pew even now as well. How can and should a faith-based office, probably that doesn't have very much money, but maybe has a tire of the domestic policy council like Tevi says, how should a faith-based office sort of be about the kindling of trust or at least being about not doing harm when it comes to trust at the local and religious l- institutional
2: level yeah well first of all i think ryan is right when he points to better outcomes that's what we're trying to achieve we want to see better outcomes in terms of we're spending federal dollars we want those federal dollars to be used to achieve better results for the people who are getting them fewer people on welfare more people working less hot crime less homelessness less substance abuse. I mean, all of these things are things that we're trying to improve with federal dollars, and I think they can be better directed by faith-based offices. Over time, we have seen some devolution in terms of religion. That, that point you made about uh, from 70 to 49.5%, that's more than a 20.5% drop. It is technically just 20.5 points. But once you go across that Rubicon, where less than a majority of Americans are affiliated with some church, it talks about a disconnected America, and it is. it talks about an America where faith is not really one of the overriding concerns of most people, and that, that is a change from the America of our, our youth or our parents or our grandparents. So I think that was a really important threshold that we crossed, and part of it is because of a reduction in trust in faith-based offices. Part of it is, uh, I think, you know, the secular school system. I mean, there's a whole bunch of factors at work here, but passing on these religious traditions, I think often helps people get them to better places in their lives. And all kinds of studies show that people who are affiliated religiously tend to be happier and are more likely to be in intact marriages and are less likely to be on drugs or engaged in substance abuse. So there are positive societal benefits for having more people involved in religious life, and for a long time, we in America thought that we kind of got past the uh, sectarian challenges of the, of the old country. Barry Weiss has this great line in in her book, where she says, "In Europe, Protestants and Catholics killed each other. In America, they have brunch, and that brunch is a beautiful thing, right? A Protestant and a Catholic can believe fervently about their their respective religious traditions, but they can sit down together at the table of policymaking in America and carve out a." An appropriate path for all of us to go forward. So I think there is something to be said about the American tradition of having many people of faith worship their own faiths, but still be part of a larger faith tradition and being willing to work together across faiths. And I think that that is to some degree diminishing. And as that diminishes, as we go under 50%, you have many, many people in America. Who, instead of having religion as the organizing principle in their lives, have politics as the organizing principle in their lives. And if your difference with someone politically is at the level of a religious difference, it's hard to bridge the gap. And I think that is one of the reasons why we have such bitter partisan divides today because people are seeing their politics as their religion. And I think that's a real challenge.
1: The notion of trust and its connection to religious practice and membership is just super strong. I mean, we know. There's piles and piles of social science and economic research since the faith-based office was started to validate the priors and assumptions of the need for that office. I mean, it's just the research is even more voluminous now than it was even back then about the importance of people being connected at the community level and if connected to a community Mm -hmm. of faith, even better. I remember seeing... Bob Putnam gave a presentation when he was writing his book, American Grace. It hadn't come out yet, but he was presenting some of the research for it. He had a number, he quantified that a close friend in your congregation was worth about $40,000 of additional income in terms of your happiness. That is all things being equal. You know, you would have to earn another 40 grand to get the boost in happiness of just having a good friend at a religious congregation. And there was no other social context or other type of organization where friendships seem to, to have that kind of effect. And so the decline in membership, the decline in believe these things are going to have a lasting effect on especially the current rising generation now. And that's the bad news. On the good news front, one thing that's also just very clear from all of the research that's been done is that people still want to be engaged locally for the most part, or when they are engaged locally, whether it's in a community nonprofit or just a group of meetups in their neighborhood to take care of cleaning up a park on a Saturday or what, what have you, they rate their communities as better places to live than the people that don't show up. That when people are engaged in their community, they're just happier. They have more friends. They say yes to more things. They have a totally different assessment of the place that they live. And Americans still derive a lot of their identity from the communities where they're from. Uh, even in our large national surveys that we do at AEI, we found that when you ask people where you get a sense of identity, you know, on average, most Americans will still name their neighborhood or their community more than they will their race, ethnicity, or their political identity. And that sounds, for those of us living in DC, that almost sounds shocking. It's like, I thought everybody's identity was those other things, not this, but that is where most people are. And so I think there's something there that you can work with. And it's also worth noting that when you look over time, like at Pew surveys and and trust in government, trust in local governments is just about where it was in 1970. I mean, it it stays kind of up there between two-thirds and three-quarters of people basically trust their local government. It's been in this steep decline for state governments and then the federal government even even more so as people feel disconnected from it. So does that mean that local governments are somehow free of graft and corruption? Of course not. Some of the most ridiculous stories of corruption can come from local governments. There's something about it being your community. It's approachable you can actually go up to the same city hall where they're making the decisions and protest if you want to, or request a meeting. And there's something about that proximity that matters. And so I think policymakers should learn from that and take that dynamic very seriously. To Tevi's point about politics becoming a religion, one of the most interesting things that's popped out of the survey research we've done over the last couple of years is when we ask those kind of Bob Putnam questions, I mentioned Bob earlier, when you ask those kind of traditional social capital questions that he was interested in, like volunteering, do you ever volunteer? Are you engaged in your community those ways? We've asked those questions in the same survey where we've also asked a battery of loneliness questions that we use sort of the UCLA Loneliness Index, a battery of about 19, 20 questions that you can ask to try to gauge how and to what degree people are socially isolated. And then you kind of mash all that together. And we didn't go looking for this. It just popped out. We, we had expected to find that people that volunteered regularly had lower loneliness levels than the average person. And that turns out to be true. People, if you volunteer on a weekly or monthly basis at your church or at a local charity or a veterans club or a sports club or something, or you coach little league baseball, you're generally on average going to be less, less lonely than people that don't do those things of the, I think, 11 types of volunteering we asked about, there was only one exception to that, and that was people who listed politics as their sole volunteer activity. So so either politics is hollowing out our souls or it's just attracting loneliness people, maybe a combination of both, but that type of volunteering does not have the same effect as the others. And so when people are putting all their eggs in a political basket, we can kind of understand why people are so unhappy and, and miserable. So I think if you want to be science-based, if you want to be evidence-based, if you really care about solving problems, you have to take the power and reality of local institutions and local organizations seriously. And a lot of people in Washington don't like that because it's messy, because you have to trust them, and they might do things differently than, than the other community down the road. But that's the, that's the price you have to pay for generally a better trade off. And I'm glad we're having this conversation just because it's not happening enough in Washington these days.
0: Yeah, I was remembering that the, the publication that I think maybe you worked on, Ryan, uh, at the end of the Bush administration was called A Quiet Revolution. And the idea was, do I have that right? A quiet revolution, uh, pushing out to the local level in a humble way, in a modest way, opportunity for more initiatives that were receiving some kind of public dollars, whether devolved or, or federal, to be flourishing and at work, but not calling all that much attention to it. And it seems to me that, you know, what you just said about the local bias we often have, that our relationship with our own pastor or rabbi or cleric is positive, but our view of Jerry Falwell, well, that's a whole different story, you know, or Paula White, that's a whole different story or the show of politics, those national voices that seem to get all the attention on the big digital screen. And if that is true, that there's more local trust as things are more and more devolved, is there something to what that would suggest for the posture again, to have your structural reform piece of the office itself? I mean, what's the office supposed to do?
2: I think the office is an important leverage point for trying to promote productive uses of religious institutions in the distribution of social services. The office does not itself distribute funds. The office is a small office and, and not well-funded, but it can build that partnership between the federal government and these social service-providing faith-based institutions you know, we get back to the shekels and shackles point, by making the faith-based institutions recognize that the federal government is willing to work with them and not going to impede their ability to obey their religion and uh, follow their religion as they see fit, while at the same time trying to knock down hurdles within the bureaucracy to see if there are people who still adhere to this outdated and incorrect notion about the camel's nose in the tent or the separation of church and state precludes the use of federal dollars being directed by faith-based offices that are on the ground and kind of serving as that nexus point between the two to allow these faith-based institutions to participate in the distribution of a trillion dollars in social service spending that we have every year, making sure that those dollars are spent wisely and in the process, perhaps improving the perspective and the view and the perception that we have of religious institutions of the federal government as a social service provider, and perhaps providing some healing for the nation at the same time. That's my
0: vision. Caitlin Beattie has this new book called Celebrity Pastor right now that talks all about how it's a problem, particularly in the evangelical world, that we we want too much of the show up front. It's performative, not formative. You know, what do you think should be the norms of how a pastor or a faith leader, let's say it's Deacon Joe and not the lead pastor who comes to Washington for a meeting at the Labor Department faith-based office to try to explain what's going on. What should be the norms that govern how they come to DC where the city is very you know, politicized as you say in the
1: article? Mm. Well, I
0: think that the first
1: posture should be one of true concern for those who are struggling the most in our world. It should be a posture of compassion. Passionate conservatism was the label that got created and used when George W. Bush was running. Before that, as Tevi mentioned, there were already things going on in the 1990s around this regard. Dan Coates had his project for American Renewal. There were a number of different ways of talking about the need to get religious organizations and people of faith engaged, but it was focused on improving the lot of those who are struggling the most in our society, those who are poor, those children in foster systems, those people who are addicted to drugs and and other populations that are in trouble. And I think one of the problems that we've really been dealing with over the last few years in this performative environment that you refer to, Josh, and the performative nature of our institutions is everywhere, and and faith-based organizations and churches are not excluded from that, unfortunately has created a different set of incentives where those celebrity pastors are basically calling on politicians and others to essentially implement their view of the world on other people. And that's a very different kind of posture. And I say this as somebody who is the son of an evangelical pastor. I grew up in an evangelical tradition. I'm an Anglican now, and I've watched, I have lots of friends in and across the, the evangelical landscape all across the country. I've moved around a lot too. So I just, <laughs> people, I just know people in a lot of places and, and I've watched the shift and I've watched the shift away from the fundamental calling to the least of these, to using faith as a cudgel to sort of separate the righteous from the unrighteous and to call the unrighteous out. And That's a very different kind of role for religion in the public square. There's always going to be a role for the prophetic voice of the pastor, of the religious leader, but that prophetic voice should be about improving the country and especially starting with those whose lives are the least improved. I would hope that those religious leaders that have a public platform would actually see some of the counterproductive ways that more performative expressions of religious leadership have manifested themselves in the last couple of years and call on each other for a course correction because I think the country could really use it.
2: Yeah, in my ideal world, you would have religious leaders not involved in politics. So in my synagogue, there was a strict rule. There's no politics from the pulpit. And people who violate the rule are asked not to speak again. And our rabbi is pretty strict about never himself engaging in politics. But I also recognize that we live in a real world. And there are people of faith and people of faith-based institutions who are involved in politics. And also, if you're going to be a social service provider, you sometimes have to get involved in politics to lobby for the ability to provide the social services as you see fit. So there is going to be some mix of religion and politics in that sense. But I think to the extent you can limit it and make your religious leader not your political guide or guru, I think we'd all be better off. Yeah,
1: you know, I um, started my career with steve goldsmith when he was the mayor of indianapolis you mentioned that political piece earlier and he's a co-author on it actually <laughs> joined back up a, again but he gave me my first job out of graduate school uh, before i got involved in the think tank world and i was there for his second term so he had already developed a national reputation at that point a lot of mayors had that was you know i was talking about those reforms earlier in the 90s so many of those reforms had to do with cities just because of the nature of the of the programs That whether it was Rudy Giuliani in New York or Steve in Indianapolis. It was bipartisan. You had Ed Rendell in Philadelphia and John Norquist in Milwaukee. It was a whole group of of mayors that were sort of trying to outcompete each other for forward-looking reforms. I remember Steve, who really in the 90s before the 2000 election was already taking some of these lessons from the social science about the importance of grassroots organizations and churches to heart, created something called the Front Porch Alliance, which was always a great Term That the people sitting out on the front porch looking out over the street should be allied together to improve their community for themselves. And he would sometimes talk about values-based organizations, a a larger umbrella for those organizations at the local level, whether it was a religious congregation or whether it was just a mission-driven nonprofit that cared about the community being those people that we really wanted to bring together in super constructive ways. And I just remember walking around that city and then fast forwarding to the years of the Bush administration where we spent a lot of time out in the cities where we were talking about the initiative and all of that and and being in a lot of church basements and being in a lot of rough neighborhoods. And when you talk about getting together the groups on the ground, the Neighborhood Association over at the corner of 24th and Walnut Street, and then the First Baptist Church here and the AME Church here, three blocks from there. And you start looking at who's on the board of the Neighborhood Association and who's on the board of the the Child Welfare Agency. It's a lot of the elders from the churches. It's a lot of the grandmothers in the churches. There was this way in which you had people who really, really cared about the community, many times people of faith, but sometimes working in non ecclesiastical environments to actually do that work, that were the real source of those solutions. And I think giving, you know, to Tevi's point, we don't want politics from the pulpit, but you want those people that are regularly sitting in front of the, the pulpit who care about their neighborhood to be sort of in the driver's seat. It's happening anyway i mean it's happening in communities these are the people that are involved we've seen a decline of social capital in these sorts of organizations in a lot of hard hit places and especially in those parts of the industrial heartland where there's been a lot of out migration one of the things that's tough there which is different than maybe a large urban context is that in many of these places the the nonprofits have closed up as well that's a real challenge and a real kind of a call to the community leaders who are there to think more constructively about what it would mean to create more of those organizations or to involve them. But I think that the main point is that when religion and sort of what I would call common good concerns, you know, the welfare of the neighbor, making sure that all kids have ample food and they have a safe home to to be in if it's not their own, those are things that the community as a whole shares. And if you wanna be effective in that, it has to be religious people leading the way or it just doesn't happen to the level of quality that that it otherwise would.
0: You know what Ryan says about sort of trust at the local level and the hollowing out of nonprofits is interesting, especially you thinking about the decline of faith a little bit. Maybe in there, of course, many factors at work. But one thought experiment I heard somebody say that had Mitt Romney won, he probably would have kept the faith-based initiative. Was planning to. You probably know, Tev. I think you worked on that I mean, just a campaign. I a little read bit, domestic
2: but. policy for the transition, so yeah, we would have right, kept. So you it. know what? we would have kept so, it. Yeah, we
0: would have kept. But maybe it would have looked a little different because he's Mormon. And, you know, there's sort of a cultural experience of being Mormon. It's not like being a hegemonic majority, so things change a little bit. I wonder if you have particular insight to this too, Tevi, about sort of minority versus majority sort of status in cultural engagement and how that affects what the posture when it comes to public ought to be.
2: I don't think the uh, Romney faith-based office would have had an overtly LDS cast to it necessarily. I think that in all of the faith-based efforts, there's a recognition that minority religions have, have a role. And you know we don't really have such a dominant majority religion in the U.S. I mean, even though you know, Protestantism for a long time was the, the majority, I would say, you know, I don't think there was any denomination within Protestant that, that was larger than Catholicism in, re- in recent years. So you know, everybody feels like they're a minority to some degree, and that's kind of <laughs> the beauty of America. But I think that the Romney faith-based office might have taken some of the ideas that I lay out in my article which is you know cultivate virtue through good works highlight what the religious entities can do as a, a way to kind of improve their reputation and their involvement in american life try and rebuild trust within america of different groups that as we see the um, politics is is driving people apart, maybe a religion can bring people together. And then also look at other ways that services can be provided. I mean, we, we just have lived through this COVID pandemic. Maybe churches can be helpful in providing certain public health services. I think we saw a lot of disagreement about public health initiatives that were seen as politically motivated. But if your church is having a vaccine drive or a blood drive, maybe you're a little more inclined to listen to those folks rather than people who you think are overly politicized from the, the public health arena. So I really think there's still a lot of ground That this faith-based office and faith-based initiative can cover. Again, I'm not calling for it to be some behemoth that stands astride the federal government and directs all resources or even has resources at its disposal, but it can be a key linchpin, a key point that is a form of introduction For the faith-based offices into the kind of scary morass that is the federal government, and also a way to encourage the federal government to direct resources towards communities that are doing good works in a variety of areas and then maybe use them for not just uh, distribution of, let's say, um, job training or substantive use prevention programs, but also, you know, maybe public health initiatives. I mean, there are things that the community organizations can do at the local level, Just because they have a faith-based title doesn't mean they should be eligible to do these things. And I think they can actually be quite good at it. And I think the faith-based office can uh, use that recognition and make sure that they are part of the game in terms of solving the many, many problematic social ills that we in America are facing today.
1: Yeah, that's that's well said. It's hard to think about what the counterfact, what the environment would have been like if Romney had been president back then. But one thing that is clear is that that decade that followed that election, you know, was preceded by a financial crisis and the rise of the Tea Party and what became in the four years after that one, the growing sense of kind of the popular unrest in the country, which many people began to home in on as an issue of the working class. I think, as you know, Josh, I'm one of the the skeptics of that thesis in the sense that I don't believe that working class concerns are not real concerns, but that people have not defined the working class or understood its aspirations quite correctly. And we've done some survey work on this and research, and that's what's shaped my views. But I think what was happening was there was this sense of alienation in many communities across the country between the in-group and the out-group, the in-group elites and the out-group, kind of ordinary, everybody else. And it would have been great to have a vibrant and active faith-based and community initiative during those years that would have been able to give religious leaders in those parts of the country that were struggling the most, the heartland, the flyover country, where I'm from, all of those types of religious leaders actually speaking into that, having a seat at the table, it would have been been really interesting to see how that played out. Because what's happened in the meantime is we've really invited a lot of, you know, you talked about the celebrity pastor earlier, that we've really invited a lot of religious leaders into that debate rather than providing an alternative narrative for it so that we could have heard from the pastors of churches in the industrial heartland about what they were really working on and what they actually thought their communities needed. And it could have had a real positive effect on the sorts of policy conversations we were having about what to do about that time. So who knows what would have happened? But if you'd had a faith-based initiative that was structured with with some of the vigor and purpose that we had 20 years ago, it could have made a noticeable impact.
2: I do lie awake many a night wondering what would have happened if Romney had won that election. But it's not just for uh, faith-based office reasons. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. What
0: was the line from James Hugh Wilson about policing honoring the benefits of working as a, in a way that exceeds the benefits of not? Trust in police rises when crime decreases. That is there, uh, do you lie awake at, 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 wake at night now with, with much hope that sort of a, a work-friendly, mobility-oriented posture may be quite fresh and new in coupled partnership? with some of the faith institutions in the country. Mm -hmm. Could there be a a bit of of renewal at the moment? I think
1: there could be if we had political leaders creative enough and bold enough to talk in these terms. I think that the appetite for opportunity, mobility, community resilience, I think it's very high in this country. What seems very counterintuitive when you see it jump out of the survey data, when you actually look at working class people and how they respond to a survey caller, and we have a definition that we use of the working class. We developed with Brookings in a working group a few years ago when everyone was talking about this, very think tank thing to do, meet for a year to come up with the definition of the working class. But it's it's pretty bulletproof. I think it's pretty good. Come up with a better one if you don't like ours. But when we pull those respondents out of our survey data and we look at just their answers to American dream questions, are you on your way to the American dream? Do you think America is a place where anyone can start make and build something if they really want to? We found that that working-class respondents to those questions are more optimistic than college-educated, especially highly college-educated progressives or conservatives. So college-educated Trump supporters, for instance, are much gloomier on the American dream than working-class Black and Hispanics across the political spectrum. And so you can say, well, maybe they just don't understand income stagnation over the last 30 years or whatever, but the reality is people want that. People, People want to know that it is possible for their children to have a better life than they had. They wanna know that the policies that that govern the community that they're a part of and the people that are in charge actually share that, that same concern. And so I think we've overlearned the lessons of 2016 and spent too much time trying to figure out how to address the grievances of an aggrieved working class that may not be as aggrieved as we think that it is. And broadening out from the working class to just the middle class, we just see this over and over and over again people respond very positively to the notion of opportunity in very concrete terms as being available. And we just haven't had a political class talking about it very
2: long. Look, there's probably no better way to destroy someone's belief in the American dream than sending them to an American university today, where, you know, ideas like opportunity and American dream, and those words aren't even allowed to be said on campus. So I think there's a conscious attempt by progressive elites to try and kill the notion of the American dream. So I think that in itself is dangerous. I also think about what Ryan said when he was talking about those great reform mayors of both parties in the 1990s. And you look at the urban landscape today and you look at people who are the mayors of our major cities and you'd be pretty disappointed. I mean, those are not reform minded individuals running our cities today. And and I think it's unfortunate. So there's a lot of work to do. And in my article, I try and suggest that a renewed and revitalized faith based office after the 2024 election could potentially start to do some of that work.
0: Hey, thanks, you guys both very much. This is awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for us. Faith Angle connects leading policymakers and religion scholars with leading journalists. Thanks for listening.